Our sermon text this morning comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. These are the words of God. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as your word is preached, it would come with the demonstration of power and not in word only. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, last week we closed with the charge, do not get to heaven without any good stories to tell. Do not get to heaven without any good stories to tell. And uh, our text this morning uh, continues to challenge us along this same line. If it is true, as we saw last week, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, If it is true that resurrection life is forever and that this life is a breath, then why do we not take bigger risks for God? Why do we not make seeking the kingdom a higher priority? Why are we still so afraid of pain, of discomfort, of conflict, of people disapproving of us. It is as if when Jesus called us to follow him, we forgot that he said, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. Jesus says in Luke 14, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You read that and it makes you wonder if you are a a disciple, right? Many people start to follow Jesus and many stop. Many people start to follow Jesus, but not all of them continue. If you remember uh, the parable of the sower, it's in a couple of the Gospels, there are people there, there are, there's soil that receives the word, the seed, with gladness. They endure for a time, but it says, when affliction or persecution ariseth, they are offended and fall away. Mark 4, 16 to 18. So uh, if we take the words of Jesus seriously, uh, it's not easy to be a Christian, And depending on the time and place in which you live, it may be more or less difficult. Uh, In America, we have enjoyed a couple hundred years of relative peace from overt persecution. We can still uh, gather here freely. This is not China. We don't have to hide or uh, register with uh, the city government. And yet there are many uh, other ways, we might call them covert ways, that Christians are marginalized, silenced, and shamed in our culture. 
There are Christians who have lost their livelihoods by daring to stand firm against the regime. We will not bake the cake for the gay wedding. You remember that incident. We will not be silent as they abort and mutilate children. We will not play the pronoun games and pretend that God never said, from the beginning, he made them male and female, Matthew 19.4. If you dare to say those things in public, prepare to suffer. We do not live in the same context as the apostles or the Philippians in the first century. You'll probably not be thrown to the lions for saying Jesus is Lord. Nevertheless, it still stands that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will endure some measure of suffering. And Christ's call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him, is still the same. That is universal. It applies in every time and every place. So what is that cross for you? What does that cross look like for Christians in America? For a lot of us, it's going to, to look like losing friends. I don't, know, I don't know how many of you perhaps have different opinions with friends and family over what happened the last couple years with COVID. I know that there might be a different friend group that you have as a result of what you thought about that. Do we wear masks? Do we get vaccinated, right? This is the, the kinds of things that people are talking about. And depending on what stand you take, people may not agree and not want to be your friend anymore or may not want to gather with you at Thanksgiving if they're, they're your family. If you do not hide your light and witness under a bushel and people see you shining forth the truth of Christ, you should expect there to be pushback. Right? Sometimes we do something righteous, <laughs> we do something courageous, and then we are surprised when people aren't praising us for that stand. Okay? But we should expect that. We should expect that when the darkness sees your light shining, they try to snuff you out. No man, no woman enters heaven with the world praising them for their great righteousness. Even Plato knew this. Socrates knew this. They didn't know Christ, but they knew that if a righteous man were to come, he, every, they would kill him. Okay? This is eventually, eventually how Socrates dies, but... Even the pagans knew that. Being righteous does not diminish the suffering or the public shame. If anything, it increases it. Because we know the perfect one came. The righteous one came, and what did they do to him? So why should we think that it's any different for us? That was true for the Philippians, and it is true for us today. I say all of this by way of context for our text this morning because... Um, as I walk through this passage, as we study it together, I want to place a question before all of us, a question that I myself have had to kind of pray through and wrestle through this week. The question is this, do you desire to be counted worthy to suffer for the name? Do you desire, you can ask yourself, do I desire to be counted worthy to suffer for the name? Now, notice I'm not asking you, do you desire to suffer, full stop. 
We're not masochists. This is not asking you to have a martyr complex. But do you desire to be counted worthy in the eyes of God to suffer for his name? Or to put it another way, do you desire to be as righteous and blessed as Job? Or does that scare you a little bit? It scares me. (laughs) I don't want to lose everything. I don't want all my children to die in a tornado. I want them to live. I want to live and watch them grow up. And so the cross, for many of us, the primary way that a lot of us suffer as Christians is by receiving from God, like Job did, many good and perfect gifts. Many good and perfect gifts from your heavenly Father. And then being asked at some point to give them back to him whenever he says so. The challenge for most of us will be to thank God for the many gifts, and indeed they are countless, and then to thank him also when he takes them away. It's hard. It's hard for the rich man to enter heaven because he has so much more to lose. And if we get too attached to these things of earth, we can become blind to how fleeting and temporary it all is. So I want this sermon to be a reminder for all of us. Is Christ sufficient for you? Do you love his glory more than anything? Do you desire to be counted worthy to suffer for him? I hope this sermon can help us say yes to that. All right, with that in mind, uh, let's set the context by going to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. If you remember this scene there, the apostles, uh, Christ is risen, they're going and preaching, and they are beaten before the Sanhedrin, and they are commanding them not to preach. The decree goes out from the Sanhedrin, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And this is what Luke says in Acts 5, verses 41 to 42. It says, they, referring to the apostles, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. (laughs) Notice uh, they were beaten, but the thing, the, the suffering here is the shame. It's not just that they suffered physically. The thing that Luke draws our attention to is the shame of being publicly beaten, the shame of the disapproval of the religious leaders at this time. And then verse 42 says, And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. The apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. They saw that God was honoring them by giving them suffering. And once they're released, they don't stop. They do not stop doing the very thing that brought suffering upon them. That is an apostolic mindset. That is the mindset that every Christian should aspire to. And so this is the situation that Paul and the Philippians find themselves in. Paul is in prison in Rome for preaching Christ, waiting trial. And meanwhile, in the Roman colony of Philippi, about 800 miles away, Christians are being pressured and persecuted as well. Moving then into our text, 
uh, we find in verses 27 to 30 the beginning of a new section uh, in the book. Uh, This section is actually going to run from uh, chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through Philippians 2, 18. So this is kind of one unit of thought. And it focuses on how the Philippians are to conduct themselves in Paul's absence. So Paul's away. He's planted this church. How are the Philippians to live while he's gone? Starting in verse uh, 27, Paul says this. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. All throughout this section from uh, verse 27 through 18, and really through the end of the book, Paul is going to use uh, athletic military and political vocabulary. These are not just the normal Greek words uh, in here. They have a unique context that connotes uh, athletic competition, uh, military prowess, and political ideals. And this is how he is going to describe how the Philippians are to conduct themselves. This is is intentional. Uh, I'll give you one example. The word, uh, depending on your translation, at least in the King James, it says, only let your conversation. Some translations might have conduct. Uh, That word there could be translated more uh, accurately, at least to our mind, by the phrase, live as citizens. Uh, The Greek is politeustai. You can kind of hear that polite, polity, polis is city in in Greek. And this is saying, uh, this is the word for citizenship. And it actually is going to show up again in chapter 3, verse 20. Paul will say our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. So a conversation here is not just two people talking to one another. It is your manner of life. It is specifically your political citizenship, your relation to uh, the community at large. So the idea here is that the Philippians are to live first and foremost as citizens, as we'll see in chapter 3, of heaven. Citizens of heaven. And that loyalty to Christ and his lordship is going to shape how they live as citizens of Philippi, earthly citizens. Now we should note that this heavenly citizenship that we all have as baptized Christians does not nullify uh, your earthly citizenship. And we know this because Paul explicitly appeals to his status as a Roman citizen in order to gain a fair trial. At the same time, it is because of Paul's heavenly citizenship that he is being brought up on charges in the first place. So we are a kind of dual citizens in this sense, but there may be times when our heavenly citizenship, that is to say, our duties to heaven, our duties to Christ, are going to get us in trouble on the earthly plane. Sometimes this trouble will be with the governing authorities. Sometimes the trouble will come from fellow citizens who simply don't like us. This is what we saw in Acts 16 when Paul planted the church. Remember, he cast the evil spirit out of the damsel. She's delivered. But then her handlers bring up Paul and Silas on charges for disturbing the peace messing with the economy. When the gospel goes forth, 
When Christians are living as citizens of heaven, we should expect it to disrupt the status quo. Suddenly, sinful business practices, sinful habits of life get exposed. And with that comes resistance. People don't like change. So Paul tells the Philippians here, let your conversation, let your life as citizens be as becometh the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? Well, we're going to get a much fuller picture of what this looks like in future sermons. We're going to come in the uh, next week and the, the week after to one of the primary texts for the incarnation. It just happens to be around this time we're celebrating uh, Christmas. And we're going to see, Paul wants them to have the mind of Christ, to think like Christ. But specifically here in, in our text, there's something that Paul emphasizes. And that's what we're going to focus on here. He says, I want you to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Okay. What does it look like to live as a citizen as becomes the gospel? It looks like unity. Notice, you can't actually obey this all by yourself. In order for their unity, there has to be multiple people coming together to love and think and agree and work, to strive together. So it's just presupposed uh, that the church is this communal thing, not an individual thing, right? We tend to think, I can choose to go to church. I can choose to be a member. I can choose to do all these things. That's just American thinking, okay? <laughs> and there, there's good things about that. But in Scripture, it's presupposed that this is all stuff you're doing together. So to live as a citizen looks like living together. That's the assumption. And then beyond that, it looks like being united. Now, what kind of unity does Paul command here? He commands unity to stand firm in one spirit. Unity to be of one mind. As we'll see later, to have the mind of Christ. We'll explain what that means. Unity also to work together for the faith of the gospel. Now, let me go on a little uh, a rabbit trail on unity for a moment, because I think I get a lot of questions about this. As a new church, people come in visiting, checking it out. They have a lot of questions about what do we think about the church down the street or their church they used to come, come from. Uh, so we need to get on the same page here with what we think about church unity. In the history of the church down to the present day, there is constant debate over what kind of unity the church should have. And so I want to give us a few distinctions to think uh, biblically about this, uh, because this is probably the single dividing line, the primary dividing line between all of Protestantism and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. Okay? Uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Likewise, in John 17, Jesus prays that his church will be one. Now, you could read those texts and then suddenly just uh, fill that oneness with all of your own ideas. In this sense that Paul is talking about here, the unity is 
in objective, invisible, spiritual unity. It's unity of the spirit. Spiritual unity that believers across the world have. So this means if you are a Christian full of the spirit, you are, you are one with the saint in China who you've never met before. We share in the one spirit, the one baptism, the one God. And if you have traveled, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you, I, I was in Budapest visiting a church, my sister lived over there for some time. And it's just crazy. You're thousands of miles from your, your native land. And yet you have the same Bible. You work, you, you're singing a lot of the same songs. Maybe the food's different. Okay, the food's really different. Um, People travel in trains rather than in cars, and they drive like madmen. But you have this shared unity in the spirit. You, you know we love the same God. Have any of you guys experienced this, just, just traveling? There might be lots of weird things they do. <laughs> Culturally, you, know, you probably smell weird to them, and they smell weird to you. But you know there is the aroma of Christ there, a, a true and genuine love for the Lord. So we all kind of know that there is this spiritual unity. And Paul says, I want you to maintain that. Keep that unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So, that, so that's a kind of unity. At the same time, this what we might call invisible unity can be more or less reflected in what we call the visible church. So that, that's the people you can, you can see here. One of the major errors of both the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox systems is that they equate institutional or visible unity with that real, spiritual, invisible unity. They equate communion in and submission to their specific form of church government, whether under the Pope or Archbishop. They equate that mistakenly with the real spiritual communion and submission we have to Christ. What this means is that whereas we may lament the many different denominations in Protestantism, and if you talk to a Roman Catholic, this is one of the things they will uh, say is wrong with us. You ha- you're so divided, you have all these denominations. Uh, okay, that's kind of true. But this is not in and of itself a contradiction of our unity. The church is one, and you can't change that. The church is objectively one in Christ because Jesus prayed it would happen. Does the Father give the Son what he asks? Yes, always. Now, at the same time, that invisible spiritual unity is something that you and I cannot know with absolute fact who all is in that, right? We know there are tares amongst the wheat. We know there are false confessions all over the place. There are people who are Christians in name only, and Scripture gives us categories for this kind of thing. So that is to say that these, uh, what we might call divisions or differences in names or denominations, is not in itself a contradiction of our spiritual unity. Because nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to all be under one singular bishop or pope or church government. That is a category mistake that they make. We do believe that one day there will be greater visible unity and cooperation amongst different churches. But nowhere in scripture does God command the kind of visible or institutional unity 
that the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox assert. Okay, notice in our text what the unity is that Paul calls for here. It's not institutional. It's not a form of church government. It is a unity first to stand firm in one spirit. That is, we all have one heart, that abounding love for the Lord. The second thing is to be of one mind or one soul together. That is to be united with the mind of Christ in all humility and service. And then third, from that unity of heart and mind, we are to strive together. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. And uh, the Greek word here for strive is this language of uh, soon in Greek. This is to bring something together. And then it's like the word athlete. So you're, you're working together in this race, running together. That's this, this language here for strive. This is the work of preaching and making Christ known in your community. So we, we might call this a unity of evangelism or witness. Or for example, uh, yesterday we sang carols in the park and there were other churches besides Christ's covenant church that we invited, that came, and we all sang there, and we're just bearing witness before the, the tractor parade. And that goes a long way, right? When people just see different churches, different pastors who believe very different things singing the same song together, wherein our voices, the, the sound actually becomes one, like a chord, that is a witness to the world of our spiritual unity. And there, there's totally, I'm happy that they have a different church and do things according to their understanding of God's word. God bless them. That's the kind of disposition and unity Paul's calling for here. None of these forms of unity require us to be in the same denomination. And so when it comes to preaching the gospel, witnessing to our community, we should really read this letter and the letters in the New Testament, kind of like Paul is addressing a whole city or region. So uh, this is to the Philippians. Uh, Philippi, according to you know, archaeological uh, studies, was probably about 50,000 people. So how big is Chehalis Centralia? About 25K and then you know, commuters and the surrounding region, Lewis County, I think is like 85,000 people or something. So you can think about this letter and read it like Paul is writing to all of the saints in Centralia, Chehalis, Lewis County. So that's kind of the category that Paul has in mind. And there is just no way in the first century, they didn't have church buildings yet, there's no way that they were all gathering in one place, all however many thousands of Christians there were at this time. So there were most certainly different churches, maybe meeting in homes or meeting in other places that were gathering together. And then this letter would arrive and then it would be circulated amongst them. Okay? So they're all within that city. All the saints in Philippi, you're a Philippian Christian, are supposed to be united with other people on the other side of the city. This is the kind of unity that Paul is wanting the church to have. And of course that applies to we should be united in this congregation, but he's talking about a bigger unity, a unity that extends throughout the whole uh, city. This doesn't mean they have to agree on every point of doctrine. They didn't all agree. Paul's going to name two women, Eodius and Syntyche, who did not agree. And he's going to say, I beseech you 
please agree, okay? If the apostle has to name you, uh, you need to agree, okay? So there's going to be disagreement, just like there will be in our church and amongst other churches. But nevertheless, we're to be united in our love and witness to Christ. I like that when I drive past Planned Parenthood, I see people that, I have, that are not in our church, I have no idea who they are, you know, with, with the signs out there, okay? That is a shared unity, and church, churches doing that kind of mission work, that prayer, uh, we can be co-belligerents with uh, even, I think, the Roman Catholic Church against certain evils in our day, like the abortion issue, okay? We can join hands, praying, serving, uh, helping uh, to end that. The reason that Paul wants us to be unified beyond just the local congregation, but throughout the whole city, is given in the next verse, verse 28. He says, And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. The reason we need to be united is because it is hard to stand alone. It is not easy to stand against adversity when your friends uh, abandon you. Uh, there's, a, there's a church in my hometown, and when uh, COVID happened and the federal vaccine mandate is, is rolling out, and a lot of them have kind of federal government jobs, there was this option to get, a, you could sign a religious exemption letter. You had to just get one from a pastor. And a bunch of churches People were asking for them from their pastors, will you give me this religious exemption letter? And pastors would not write them. And so this, this church that I'm friends with, they had all of these people coming to their church requesting letters from them. You know, it's not their pastor. And so they had in their foyer these exemption letters that people could come in and get. And how do you think uh, that made the other churches feel? They didn't like that. They, they thought, once upon a time, they had fellowship together with these other churches, but then something like this vaccine mandate comes, and suddenly the church splits. They're not, they're not united. And I, I don't know what the status on that mandate is. I think it might be rescinded or is in the process of being rescinded. But that church tried to stand firm according to what they believed. I think believed correctly that such a mandate is unlawful. It's not sinful to get uh, the jab. It is sinful for the government to mandate, though, that you do. And taking this kind of stand, which we may have to take again in the future, is not popular, even and especially amongst Christians. And so here was an instance where the church should stand firm and should stand firm together, and yet all of these churches folded under the pressure. That's, a, that's, that's an F on the, the unity test there. So Paul wants us to be united because it's hard to stand alone. I went and visited these elders, and they were discouraged, right? You start to second guess whether you made the right decision when all of your friends are doing the, op the opposite thing. It's far easier to stand when you know you have an army of saints at your side. And that is how God wants the church to stand, united against injustice, against adversity, for the sake of Christ's kingdom. A divided church is very easy to conquer, but a church united is a terror 
to the darkness. So the sense of this verse is that when we are, when you are unafraid in the face of your adversaries, this is a sign, notice, this is a uh, evident token. It's a sign both of your salvation and their destruction. Listen to what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1 along these same lines. Paul says, We ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. It's a righteous thing with God to give tribulation to those who trouble you. Christ will defend his bride. God will avenge the blood of his saints. And so we ought to be courageous in the face of evil. This is your opportunity to have a good story to tell in heaven. Finally, in verses 29 to 30, Paul tells the Philippians how to receive this suffering. So, so you hit pushback. How are you to think about that? He says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Do you believe that faith is a gift from God? You should, because it is, right? Ephesians 2.8, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is a gift from God. But do you also believe that suffering is a gift from God? You should, because it too is a gift. And this is key. This is the key to how we can desire to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. We must see that God is the giver of our tribulation. God is the one who, in the words of Job, gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It says in Amos 3, 6, Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? God says in Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So for the Christian, there is Nothing that happens to you, nothing that does not first pass through the kind hands of your heavenly Father. And that means that everything painful, everything that you suffer, is conspiring for your good. If you believe that, if you believe Romans 8.28, Genesis 50 verse 20, and Philippians 1.29, then you can joyfully pray these words. God, make me worthy to suffer for Christ. I don't want to suffer, but if suffering for you will further the kingdom, if suffering for you will glorify Christ, I will gladly take up my cross and follow you wherever you go. Faith is a gift, and suffering for Christ is a gift too. I'll close with this. 
Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 21, you will, be, you will be betrayed. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Jesus promises here that even in death, not a hair of your head will be lost. That means there is nothing you can actually lose here if you belong to Jesus. As Paul says, death really is gain. And so whatever you give up, whatever God takes from you, whatever you lose, whatever you suffer for Christ, Jesus says also, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. Luke 18, 29 to 30. That offer still stands to all who will believe. You cannot Lose anything ultimately. Nothing good will you lose if you belong to Christ. And so come to Christ. Remain with Christ. As Jesus says, by your patience, possess your souls, and he will give you life forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you know how weak our faith is. You know how fragile we are, how sensitive we are to discomfort. God, I ask that you would wean us off of the worldly and carnal pleasures that we so crave, that you would make us to desire and crave the good, the higher things, the glorious things of which you say in your word are not even worth comparing to all the treasures of this world. I ask that you would show us your glory, that when we get up tomorrow, we would work for you. We would live unto you and even be willing to suffer for you. Give us this faith in Jesus' name and amen.